All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. Guys, Blue Crown Aquatics has the sweetest new pieces to their collection. They have betas. Yes, koi betas. Go check them out on Blue Crown Aquatics' website and Pandaloches. It's never been a better time to get your butt to that website and use our promo code AquariumGuys for free shipping. I even have Mr. Pickles to tell you how much he wants to order from Blue Crown but can't because he's in Canada. I love Pandaloches so much, and if I could, I would love to get one from their website. And uh, I literally ordered betas the other week, and they were so expensive. But on their store, they have it for a really good price. I would love to order, so but I can't. Don't <laughs> don't be a pickle. You know, you're in the United States when you're listening to this, at least the majority of you. If you're in the United States, don't hesitate. Stop. Go check them out. And don't forget our charity of choice, Ohio Fish Rescue. They just got donated another massive reef tank. You got to see this. They 500 just uploaded. Gallons. Yes, 500 gallons. And it came with a massive centerpiece. Go check out their YouTube channel, Ohio Fish Rescues on YouTube. And, you know, give them some love. Go to their website, ohiofishrescues.com. And on the site, you'll find three ways. I think it's Patreon, GoFundMe, PayPal. Give a little money. But call them. The number's on the website. Tell Rich how much you love him and his content. Let's kick that podcast. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. All right, guys, welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast. So this week, we're going to be airing an additional episode, yes, it was requested by our friends in Ireland. They 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 called us out. They said they they're sick of waiting a week between podcasts and they want another one. So I'm in the studio alone today, and I have Pickles here just to kick out an introduction. Pickles, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm sublime. What we're doing is we have a pre-recorded po- uh, podcast that we've been saving for you for a rainy day. And what better rainy day than the you know Thanksgiving Black Friday end of week podcast? <laughs> Woo! That was a that was a hell of a whoop. Pickles has been waiting. Yeah. This podcast, Jimmy and I actually went to our local Department of Natural Resources in Minnesota because we have so many lakes. There's really no better place in the United States of America to see how the Department of Natural Resources fisheries work. And we have one of the largest walleye fisheries in the nation, I believe, and we are right by us. So we were lucky enough to sit down with Mandy Erickson at the, uh, the Minnesota DNR. And again, she's part of the management there. And they give us a lot of trade secrets on how they breed walleye. It's going to be a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the whoop from Mr. Pickles was certainly uh, deserved. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to jump you right into that podcast again just a quick reminder before we dive in please like and subscribe this we want these push notifications to your phone so if we do get called out from ireland again and have to put out a podcast off schedule like this you just know about it you're not going to miss it you're not going to see two podcasts when you're normally expected to see one make sure to like and subscribe and also aquariumguyspodcast.com don't forget we have discord Facebook. We have a merch store in case you want some sexy t-shirts. Remember, you definitely want to see me in a crop top. Mr. Pickles is like, no. Yeah, why do you think I'm staying silent here? You're just staying silent. Well, thanks. Thanks for the support. You're like, no, Rob, you're going to look great in a crop top. I love Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yeah, I'll pass. I'll pass. All right. Well, again, let's kick uh, that uh, that podcast for the second time. <laughs> 
Hi, friends. We are here today at the Minnesota DNR Fisheries in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, and we have a special guest, Mandy. Please introduce yourself. My name is Mandy Erickson. I'm the Assistant Area Fisheries Supervisor here in Detroit Lakes. Thanks again for taking the time and having us. And again, I'm your host, uh, Rob Zolson, and we have with today with us... We've got Jim Colby. We got him out of the house, and we took him on the road. I, we got to have lunch together. It was very cute. I'm on a cheap date. It was only $16. Yeah, I even got to supersize it. It was wonderful. Oh, man. I love it. I love eating the car with you, Rob. This, that was a lot of fun. This podcast is not sponsored by Pizza Hut, but call us. <laughs> that would so, be nice if they were sponsoring us. Maybe yes. Get some, get some free food because we are wasting away, the two of us. So today this podcast, we want to be the theme of Department of Natural Resources. So in the Aquarius hobby, again, this is not necessarily about aquariums, but I believe that every aquarium enthusiast should be knowledge about what is happening in their local lakes and streams. We continually preach about, you know, not taking your tropical fish species and dumping in a lake or stream. And what better way to, you know, know what's going on and have the direct advice than from the experts. So thanks again. And, you know, first of all, let's start with you. You know, what caused you or what uh, motivated you to work for the DNR? Uh, when I was little, I loved to be outside. I often fought to try and uh, wiggle my way into what at that time in my family was a guys club. Dad and brother would always go in the woods and I always wanted to go. Was never really allowed to go until my grandpa started tagging me along and I would go minnow trapping with my grandpa while uh, everyone else was out and about and I was uh, stuck at grandma and grandpa's house. But grandpa used to take me out in the mine pits up in northeast Minnesota and uh, We'd go minnow trapping there, we'd go pick berries and walk through streams and whatever else and started fishing and playing in the woods and uh, running our, our at that time little banana seat bikes into the Superior National Forest and building trails and playing in streams and having a great time. And I always had aquariums full of miscellaneous stuff in the yard and the rule was always you could keep it for a day and then you had to put it back. So we had a frog pond in the town I grew up and would always go down and catch our bucket of frogs, come back, have frog Olympics in the backyard and then bring them back down into the pond the next day. We had turtles and fish and all sorts of stuff. I thought you were going to say you're going to eat frog legs. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> I was waiting for that also. I have that's never north of eaten, the border. Never have I ever had and frog legs. They're delicious. They're delicious, <laughs> you monster. I, I, I mistakenly had some one time. I was at a French restaurant with some people, and they ordered in French, and I did not know what I was getting. Oh, oh. And, and yeah, they're not my friends anymore. But not, not your friends. Yeah, and I'm going, these are the tiniest chicken legs I've ever seen in my life. Oh, <laughs> Chick so no, we never uh, ate them. We never, uh, we never lit up the grill and barbecued our playdates. So. <laughs> That's probably best. It was best. It was best. Secret time. Don't don't eat your playdates. Don't no. eat your playdates. No. no. Mm-hmm. So no. Again, we're at the Detroit Lakes uh, DNR uh, Fisheries. This is the head office that we're in, correct? This is an area office. Yep, we're part of the northwest region of the state. Obviously, our regional office is based out of Bemidji, and then this is an, an area office. So we have several different divisions in this office. We have foresters, uh, wildlife staff, fisheries, um, ecological resources, hydrologists, uh, Red River Fisheries Specialists. We're all based out of this office here. So it's a pretty neat place to work and a lot of diverse work going on out of this office. And we walked in and you guys, it looks like a 125 gallon aquarium and they have crappie, sunfish and sturgeon right there to display for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. And it was just a real, uh, real treat to see being aquarium people. But this, you walk in and there's so many different types of mounts everywhere. There's muskies to you know, hawks to everything. So it's it's a real treat. Even in our, our conference room that we're in, I'm looking at a giant white swan just staring at me in the corner. 
We like I should get, eat ice cream. We do get a lot of people coming in here and they think it's a museum or they think it's a tour place and they, they ask for tours and we kind of have to tell people this is actually our office so you can walk around and look for sure um, but yeah this is not a museum even though it looks like it but it's it's neat a lot of these things are or the the mounts are donated by uh, outdoor people that have passed away and their family didn't have anywhere for them to put uh, the mount sometimes they come here some of them are actually um, confiscated animals that have been donated by the taxidermist that has mounted them so they're for educational purposes if you are familiar with becker county and our becker county fair every year all of these animals are on display at the becker county fair the natural resources building so they do get moved around a little bit we have a pretty good uh, display of furs as well and those are on a board in the in the hallway in a lot of schools and boy scout girl scouts um, 4-h groups will borrow those furs when they go through an animal unit so it is neat and they do go out for a lot of educational purposes I had to double back on that because I thought it was just like this, uh, you know, place you hang up coats. I'm like, that's a lot of, f- oh, there's tags on those. <laughs> oh. Yes. Please don't make a coat out of a gray wolf. Please. I was going to say, but we do have coat. a hide here. It's yeah. Won't cool. that be a nice, a nice uh, gift as you walk out the door, you're putting on a, a big pelt and <laughs> go out and traipse around just in the woods. Just a quick throw over my, exactly. my petticoat. Right. The bear skin would make a good one. And there's a full deer hide out there as well, too. To, yeah. So, yeah, if you're. If you're looking. Awesome. So again, what is, now you said you're assistant manager. What, what is directly your role and responsibilities at the DNR? Um, our jobs as fishery specialists for the DNR are, are very diverse. Um, mine specifically changes quite a bit with the seasons. And most most off, most jobs within the DNR do vary quite a bit within the seasons. Um, in the spring, I run our fish hatchery. We run walleye hatchery here. We take eggs out of Lake Sally. Uh, so mall of spring, I'm I pretty much live in the hatchery. And then uh, once we're done stocking in the spring, then I go into lake surveys. Um, Most of my work is index of biotic integrity. So we're looking at the non-game fish, the minnow species that are up near shore that are indicators of habitat in the lake, whether a lake is healthy or not. So I do a lot of that sampling. also do a lot of aquatic management area acquisition and maintenance lands that the state has bought to protect critical habitat. work with that. And then in the fall, we do... um, Walleye harvest, we go back into our rearing ponds from the spring and harvest fish and stock lakes with walleyes that we hatched out of our hatchery in the spring. And what about, what size are they at that point when they've sat there in the ponds for the summer? How many, how, how Depends many Depends on what they're eating. Um, we had, just this year, we had fish that were about 45 to the pound, which were about three and a half inches long. And then we did have fish that were 12 to the pound were our biggest, and those are pushing seven inches or so. But there have been times, you know, when, when they're stocked into a pond and there's not much for them to eat and they're 90 or 100 to the pound and they're only about two inches long at that point. And then there's some cases where they stocked into a pond and they've eaten minnows all summer long and they're quarter pound each. So varies depending on what they're eating. And for, for those of you listening, it's hard to count fish. And so when she says, you know, there's nine to a pound, there's nine fish that equal a pound weight. Correct. And uh, that's when you're buying uh, feeder fish and that's, sort of, that's how they do the counting. They really don't count. They get an average size um, because if you're going to count 10,000 of these things, you're going to be there till Tuesday. Good luck. Right. And we'll take a couple grab samples and do weight checks and we'll, we'll weigh out five pounds and actually count how many fish are in that five pounds. If we're in the hatchery, it's all mathematical equations that were developed by some poor grad student in a lab somewhere counting fish in a microscope. So we thank them for their work and use their equation. <laughs> thanks, thanks for all the free work. Thanks for that. <laughs> right. how, how many 
because people always ask, people want to know numbers. Every time we have somebody that gets back to us and they ask a question, they want to know what numbers. How many individual fry do you think that you put out in these oh, lakes? I printed that sheet off. So out of I knew you had it. Right. <laughs> we find the right column. Um, this year. Uh, the number of eggs that we took was 66,863,947. So that's how many eggs eggs we harvested. So any egg batch, you only get so many that we you know completely get uh, reintroduced. So how many you expect total fish after they hatch get introduced? From our hatchery, we uh, I run our hatchery, and I'm incredibly picky about how things work in our hatchery, and we take pride on doing a pretty good job. And we're generally hatching over 70% of our fish. Which is pretty good. Um, you know, you've got to realize the scale that we have. We'll have pushing 400 quarts of eggs, and each quart is about 120 to 130,000 eggs per quart. So the sheer number of individual live eyes looking at you in that hatchery is is a big deal. So um, hatching about se- over 70 percent is pretty good. This last year we were close to 80 percent, which is which is great. And as technology goes forward and stuff, it gets to be a little bit easier when you get new equipment. Um, I know, too, when when I'm hatching fish, um, it's a lot easier than it was 10 years ago. Well, that's the great thing about a state hatchery. You're (laughs) on top of it. No, actually, we are very funding dependent, and we are dependent on the funds allocated by the legislature, which sometimes is not very flush. So. The uh, technology that we're using in our hatchery is not the greatest. Um, right now, I have 1940 technology for an iron filter, <laughs> so, and we are looking for money for hatchery upgrades. So um, sadly, for as important as walleyes and other game fish are in this uh, state, we don't always see that follow through into appropriations for our hatchery uh, upgrades and uh, being able to do things as efficiently and cost-effective as we can. So in this hatchery, uh, iron filtration out of groundwater is the most difficult thing that we fight with. And our water is heavy in iron just by the nature of where we are. And iron will coat the fish eggs and give us our biggest issue. So, so yeah, we're able to uh, rely on gravity, which is not reliant on technology and then <laughs> for our uh, for our flow through the hatchery system but then our our water is is uh filtered right now by polyester quilt batting actually and our flow through system that's what system. we use so yeah. yeah but we're running i mean we're running up towards 3 million gallons a year uh through that and and once if if you're using quilt batting as a filtration medium you know that once it gets full there is no ability to flush that and restart. You've got to shut everything down and, and that's just not an option. So it's kind of a race against time in the spring for us in terms of filtration with the water that we're in, we're monitoring our flow, making sure it's high enough to do what we needed to do, but not too high that we burn through our iron filter so fast. So yeah, so much for the <laughs> technology. Wow, that that blew me away. I'm, I'm going, yeah. I'm expecting to see, you know, space shuttle type stuff no no not at all we we're have talking a, covered wagon type we're talking stuff. my uh, chemical drip station is an upside down bottle that's measured and uh dripping slowly and wow. uh, probably the most technologically advanced thing we have is we've got a uh, great tv and vcr in our viewing room that shows videos of us doing uh different types of field work throughout the year that's that's probably the most technologically advanced piece of equipment we have in the hatchery. But it works, and we've got one of the best hatch rates in the state, and we're able to produce and sustain some fantastic fishing opportunities around here. So, 
Wow, good luck getting anything new. Right? Because if you're doing that well on this stuff, they're going to look at you and go, you go, girl. Okay, so when you get back in the studio, edit that part out. Oh, yeah, you got it. Yeah. You got it. But, but no, we uh, make the best with what we have and, and uh, yeah, end up end up succeeding. So That, that is very uh, impressive. You get an 80% hatch rate like that when you're talking that many millions of fish. Um, how long does it take from a, um, once the fish is hatched, how long does it take until they absorb the yolk sac and, and move on? A couple of days, probably uh, two to three days, and they'll start looking for food. And then are you keeping them right at, at uh, like a, what's the water temperature that you normally hatch these at? We run at a solid 51 degrees. Uh, it used to be 52. For years and years, our groundwater is 52. The last couple of years, it's dropped to 51. So... Um, not sure why that change was, but we're running at a solid 51 degrees. And for us, we are on groundwater, so that temperature is pretty constant. Some of the different hatcheries around the state are running off of filtered surface water, and they will see some drastic temp fluctuations, which, as I'm sure you know, has a dramatic effect on egg development and hatch time. So uh, they can change. But ours here, we hatch at about 21 days, and our water temperatures water temperature is about the same throughout the whole thing. So that's that helps us quite a bit. So there's no gestation, like a higher rate for a lot of these fish. They literally, 21 days in that cold environment, there's no heat up. There, for us, there's not. But if you, you know, if you're watching your degree days and all of that, you can. There there are some hatcheries that are messing with heaters and chillers to slow things up and uh, or slow things down and speed things up, depending on what the environmental conditions are doing. But for our hatchery here, we we don't have heaters. We don't we have heaters actually, but we don't use them for walleyes, um, and we don't have chillers. So we're kind of at the mercy of of uh, hoping that our inside conditions matching our outside conditions. And most of the years they do. Fry are pretty tough when you take them out of the hatchery and put them into natural ponds or lakes, which is where ours go to. And more often than not, the conditions are are somewhat similar. You know, the water warms up kind of slowly, and we're still stocking in similar water temps. We're not we're not putting fry into 80 degree lake water. It's you know we're stocking in May. Things are still pretty cool. So two questions before we go on is because we went over a lot of a <laughs> lot of topic there. For your filters, you use quilt batting. Any other type of because generally any in the aquarium hobby, you're looking for mechanical, biological, and uh, chemical. Right. We do have air stones, so that's that'll be about it. We have um, sprayers that hopefully break up iron particles out of water when it sprays into our filter tanks, and then it goes through our um, polyester batting, and then that water is also aerated. So between the process of the spraying and the aerating, that iron is separated a bit from the water. And So um, there's no UV filter? Or? For groundwater, there's not. Our hatcheries that run on surface water, absolutely. There's, yep, there's... Uh, I think they're down now to 15 micron filters and then UV treatment as well for our groundwater, for our surface water, sorry. And surface water is lake water. And this hatchery used to run off of lake water as a backup. And then we use lake water for a lot of our transport stuff. But with zebra mussels coming into our source lake a few years back, all that was shut off. So our, our lake water pump is totally disconnected and we actually wound up using a second well as a backup for our hatchery. So we're totally on surface water right now. In the hatchery business, surface water is clean water, or uh, groundwater is clean water, I'm sorry. And uh, surface water, you're always going to be fighting one thing or another. Right now at Zebra Mussels, who knows what it might be five years from now. So you know, my, my opinion on, on that, that the groundwater is is the way to go and figure out this iron issue would, would be great, but now, is it trying a con- to go back to surface water would be Is it a continued flow of water? Or it is, is it- for us. Yep. Just the way, again, we're running on old technology. Some uh, hatcheries do recirculation systems, and uh, ours, is, ours is a flow-through system. 
Jimmy made a hand pump motion. Do you know what a hand pump is, <laughs> I <Rob>? do. <laughs> I do. Maybe I can show you what a phone booth looks like We actually later. hire interns for the hand pump operation. Do you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Give Mandy a call here at the DNR because she would love to train you in how to use the hand pump. There you go. No, 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 no. No, the reason I ask that is because, you know, in the aquarium world, you always worry about the cycle to make sure that you have the uh, ammonia, nitrate, nitrite cycle. Right. But if you're just it's groundwater, it's got bacteria in it, you're just flowing through. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what is your biggest challenge when they're eggs? So in the, again, I'm going to keep going back to the aquarium yep. hobby. Our biggest thing is egg fungus. And because that's it too. Yep. Fungus is a huge issue for us. How do you us. battle that? Um, again, I'm incredibly picky when it comes to the hatchery. So uh, the most simple thing that we have done with all of our staff that's made a big difference is I keep the place clean. Um, anyone that's touching the, my egg jars, I say my egg jars, but the egg jars, uh, I ask that they have gloves on, clean pair of nitrile gloves, whatever you itched or scratched or ate or whatever is going to go right into those jars and uh, trying to make sure that everyone's got clean hands when they're touching the outside of the jars or picking out fungus eggs on the inside that, that they're clean. So we also try and minimize a lot of the flow through traffic in the hatchery, um, just kind of watching what's in there, keeping it clean, spraying everything down. So that has been a big change in the last probably seven years that, that we've noticed. Um, during egg uh, development, try and keep the lights off when we can, um, and that's helped. We have gone through different light sources, um, and this was slightly before my time, but there was a difference between the cool light and the warm light um, that we played with for a little bit, um, pulling select bulbs, but now our uh, the energy auditors came through all state facilities and switched us all over to LED lights, um, and we weren't really sure what that was gonna do to egg development, but it actually seems to be good um, we don't have as many issues with, with fungus that is that are right in the jars, right below where the lights used to be. So that's that's changed a little bit. But for the most part, it is keeping things clean. And then we do treat with hydrogen peroxide every day. Um, we treat with that until we start seeing fry. It is toxic to the fry. It'll kill the fry. But uh, but we treat with hydrogen peroxide. Do you ever use uh, like methylene blue? That's very common for any uh, egg keeper. No, we don't. Nope. Gotcha. Some offices will use formalin. Formalin? Um, but that's... Uh, it's pretty toxic chemical. It's, Hydrogen it's peroxide high, is highly corrosive. It's really corrosive. Yeah. The type we're using is a 35 degree food or 35% food grade. So it's very corrosive. It's not the hydrogen peroxide that you wash out yeah, a no. cut with. So you've got to be pretty careful. Formalin has got its own cancer causing issues. Yes. Right. And, uh, Hydrogen peroxide has worked great for us on groundwater. If you're on surface water, the biological content and organic matter is higher in surface water than groundwater. And with that, you'll get a lot of bubbling up if you use hydrogen peroxide. So some of those hatcheries that are running on surface water will use formalin to just make sure they've got that egg treatment, but they can't use hydrogen peroxide because of their, their gas issue. But we're on groundwater, so we're okay. This is all new good information for everybody that's out there. Um, you know, the different things that have been used in the past, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, people touching stuff in, in your hatchery. Um, I've been to several major big places where they, they hatch out fish, but tropical fish, of course, and they don't even allow anybody to come in there anymore. Kind of like um, they're allowing school kids to come walk through there and stuff. And then they'd have a whole system crash about three days later. Right. And so when people tell you that, you know, to stay out of their, their barn or stay out of their hatchery, um, it makes total sense because you could lose everything just by something that right. you do that's 
silly and i mean you're not meaning to do any harm but maybe you've got suntan lotion on your arm or something you or stopped at pizza hut before you came in that's you've right you go all over and it's a flow through system and you touch the top jar and every single jar is infected and we do have signs on there that say staff only and usually once or twice a year i'll get oh can i come in and whatever else and and uh, it's for that reason uh to just keep some of that everything out of there you know we don't have foot baths here a lot of the bigger hatcheries will have foot baths that you have to step in and protective gear we haven't gone that far but um well you have an 80 percent hatch rate i mean clearly it's working right we do and you know i do get a lot of school groups come in and and i'll admit it it's cool and that's what i'll usually tell people i said i get it this place is fascinating i love it i would move my bed in there if i could in the spring but um everything you need to see you can see through our viewing room window um but sometimes with the little kids or you know kids that are super interested fisheries I'll, I'll let them come in but my first question to the crowd is all right kids who's got pockets and especially the little kids are all excited that they raise their hands i have pockets i have pockets and then you ask who has hands and then they're super excited that they all have hands and i said okay good put your hands in your pockets and leave them there and then you can come into the hatchery so everyone's hands are in their pockets they can't touch anything they can look at things they can smell all the great smells of a hatchery and hear all the great sounds and look at stuff but smell the great smells yes <laughs> it's fascinating fascinating but, yeah, smells in a hatchery please yes. don't touch the jars and then you know if if you get people bumping jars and i try and tell them that's almost four hundred thousand fish in one jar so a lot of it's a lot of money it's a lot so it's a a lot of work it's a lot of money and and people just don't realize how much work it is right so we have an ongoing joke so jimmy's been breeding angels for many years and his method is angels uh breed directly onto a, a side surface um the female lays the eggs, the male follows right up behind, and we use slates. They're just cut slates, and what we do is we take the whole slate because we can just pick up the slate because we can't touch the eggs at all. Yep. There's no scraping. There's no moving. So you just take the slate, you put it in a pickle jar, and then you have your drop of methylene blue to make sure you completely cover fungus because if you don't, the first day you'll have fungus. It has nothing to do with a clean environment for those type of fish. They just come pre-baked with that, basically. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> then you put a air stone in there and let it sit in a pickle jar. And he's got these collection of these, you know, one gallon pickle jars everywhere, right? So what jars do you use? Uh, we use McDonald jars, not McDonald's like McDonald's, but they're called McDonald jar. It's just uh, standard like, hatchery stuff. I was like, like big sauce? <laughs> no. like, like, like the secret <laughs> sauce like from Big Mac? <laughs> no. wow. What they do is every year they clean up the McRib sauce. <laughs> and then <laughs> they dig in the dumpster behind McDonald's. <laughs> right. You know, uh, Mandy made us promise that we would not get her fired, so that was a joke. I'm sorry. Kind of. No. That was kind of a joke. They but actually, joke. the jars are pretty cool. They've been around for, you know, that style of jar has been around since the 1900s. They used to be all glass, and, um, you know, glass and hatcheries obviously isn't the greatest now. They're all plastic, but they're, the jars themselves will hold three and a half gallons of, or three and a half quarts, I'm sorry, three and a half quarts of eggs. Um, in our hatchery, you, we usually have three quarts of eggs in each jar and then they have a rounded bottom. So the water comes in through the, in through a standpipe that stands up in the jar, goes to the bottom of the jar and the bottom is rounded. So all that water just billows up the eggs and they're continuously moving in the jar. So every single one and every single egg in that jar will move continuously. Just to make sure we've got fresh air, fresh oxygen, fresh water going through all those eggs in the jar. So you're tumbling the eggs. We are. Yep. And that's, that's what's known in our industry is, is uh, certain cichlids, certain eggs. Uh, you have an egg tumbler, which is exactly what you what you just described, yep. and stuff. And so you have all these eggs tumbling in there. Do Do you ever take a cracker and have some caviar? <laughs> I'm just wondering. Oh, boy. No, but I will Grode. admit to when we are actually harvesting eggs out on Lake Sally, um, I will have eggs everywhere. Hair, inside Ugh. my glasses, uh, in my ears. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. That's, <laughs> so that's when you're out there 
uh, stripping the eggs from, from see, the females. That's yep. why you don't see a DNR calendar like you do the fire department or police. Yeah. Yeah, because those those pictures really just don't work out. <laughs> that's right. People, no one's buying that. Nobody's buying the DNR. <laughs> They're not going to buy that. Here's Mandy with some uh, eggs in her hair. Right. Having a tough day. <laughs> so for those that are listening, you can actually look up at the McDonald's uh, McDonald st- uh, style jar. It actually is commonly used in uh, a lot of a breeding uh, facilities. 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 <laughs> and they have a lot of new you know, pre-filtered screens in a lot of these jars. So certainly check them out. You can just do a quick Google search and you'll find a lot of them. They range between $12 all the way up to 80 Yep. And then the standpipes come with some of the jars and there's some various types of standpipes as well. We found for us that the, the longer and wider standpipes work better than the shorter and skinnier ones for us. And then some of the McDonald listings also have screens and the screens have been great for some of the folks that are using that hydrogen peroxide and dealing with gas issues. The screens will keep the eggs in, otherwise they flow right out the system. So know, those McDonald jars are pretty standard for, for all the hatcheries around here. Perfect. So what species do you actually uh, breed? Uh, in this facility, we only do walleyes right now. Uh, the you know, This facility has been running for hundred and some years out at the Lake Sally location. And through that time, we've done everything from bass, crappies, bluegills, northern pike. Uh, we did sturgeon for quite a few years. But now a lot of our sturgeon is, or all of our sturgeon, uh, are hatched out of the Valley City, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service hatchery in Valley City. But we did hatch those for a while here and, and use that as part of our recovery ba- recovery effort for the Red River Basin. But right now it's just walleyes. We do get musky fry in, and we have a rearing pond in the area that we're raising muskies in, but they're not in our hatchery at all. So when you say bring stuff in, do you guys actually do the breeding process here, or do you harvest eggs, hatch them, and then release? For... Our fish here, we harvest right on site from Lake Sally for our walleyes, and all of those are just brought by over by little garden wagon into our hatchery, which is only about 30 yards away from our spawn take site. So all the walleyes are, are here. Um, within the state of Minnesota, we have several different genetic strains of walleyes that we're managing, and that's watershed-based. So we are Red River Watershed, so we're working with the Red River genetic strain of walleyes. And the other offices that are working Red River uh, include Budet and Bemidji and us and Fergus Falls, and then some in the South Ortonville will deal a little bit with Red River stuff as well. Those are kind of the, the primary Red River ones. So depending on how we're doing with egg harvest and established quotas, we will ship eggs to Fergus and Bemidji and, and help them out with their quotas as well. To describe the egg harvest process, you get adult uh, males and females, and you actually do the squeeze process? Or ho- Yep, yep. Yeah, so when females, uh, when they're ready to release their eggs, their, their bellies are loose um, versus tight. And if you just physically push gently on the underside of a, of a female walleye, her eggs come out pretty easily. So we do um, strip the eggs from each female into a dry bowl, add the sperm from three males just for genetic diversity, make sure we're not uh, wasting a lot of eggs on a male that may not be able to fertilize them. Um, stir it with a, a feather just to be gentle with them. Make sure we've got uh, a feather, A feather, yes, and add water at that time. There's no cooking um, spoon? Just there like... is no cooking spoon. Right. We did try silicone basters for a while and some of those new things, but that was just a little rough. So, so you get back like to a... that 1940 technology, we're on feathers. Feathers and polyester. <laughs> Or quilt batting. <laughs> Is it just a, so you go back to the covered wagon, right. and then we cover the wagon when we bring them into That's the hatchery. Right. So yeah, and then they have a corn feed in the back of the hayloft. Yeah, you, after they butcher the chickens and steal the feathers. No, we trade chickens for oh. new materials. Is it just like a, a fake? Pl- 
plastic <laughs> feather or is it actual like a bird feather? No, it's actually the secondary flight feathers of a goose that work the best. Oh my. So, oh yeah. my. <laughs> That's how they keep the fungus out of it. It's a little, little goose dusting, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? And, and the goose's name is Bruce. <laughs> His name is Bruce. Yeah. He's really pissed at us all the time. We run, run around and chase him, give me that feather. <laughs> He doesn't fly so well when we pull the secondary flight feathers. Well, and, so. and, and hence, that's why he lives here. Right. Things are doing well. DR. Bruce is bald. <laughs> but he's living in back in the garage. Exactly. He's the next mount that's going to stare at me in this conference room. <laughs> Whatever works. You know, as, as long as the eyes don't start following me, I'll be fine. But I did see Night at the Museum oh, no. too many times with my kids when they were younger. It's all over. So, yeah, we do stir with the feather. And then, um, by nature, eggs of wild fish, walleye specifically, are very sticky. So, if you think of where a walleye spawns in nature, they'll spawn in, in riffle areas, rocky shorelines, and they want those eggs to stick to the ground. So, they're they're super sticky by nature. We actually apply bentonite clay, very uh kind of like a gravyish mixture of bentonite clay and water to those eggs and let that sit for a couple minutes and that takes that stickiness off the eggs and then the eggs are rinsed and put into a tub with fresh water going through it and then back to the covered wagon they go into the hatchery now for those who are inexperienced how big is a single egg um compared to marble pea oh gosh is the size of a bb bb i would if you have maybe Rob's. five grains of sand together not very big. Not, Not very big. big. No. So, so like rock. And actually, when they come Hence out of a feather. fish, right? And when they come out of a fish, they're very small. And then when they we go through a process called water hardening, where after the eggs are fertilized, they're placed into a tub, and then we have fresh water going continuously through that tub for three hours, three to four hours, and those eggs will triple in size within that time. They'll actually absorb that water and swell up, and they're very fragile when they first come out of a fish. But after they've water hardened, you can pretty much bounce them off a floor. So, so after this, don't recommend that. But <laughs> But you can. You're, after they you're not up. saying I've ever done. That. You're going to get yourself fired. It's not going to be us getting you fired. It's but they are, they are pretty uh, pretty firm at that point. Well, if they end up in your hair, it's got to fall off sometime. It does. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a question that relates directly to walleye. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I came prepared. Rob's face is per- so perplexed right now. It's, oh. like, it's like I've got one. I don't know if I dare ask it. So this is a bit of debate, right? So. In 1984-ish, they declared the blue walleye to be extinct out of Lake Superior. So there has been recent pictures and sightings of blue walleye in Grand Forks area. Are these rumors true? Is there any backing to it? If you tell us, do you have to kill us? I am not. You are in allowed the loop to plead the that. fifth. I I will plead the fifth, but I am not in the loop on on that whatsoever. So, so sorry, I'm. Yeah, that one I'm going to have to defer. I don't know that one. So for listeners, um, the uh, blue walleye or blue pike used to uh, be again a prevalent fish in Lake Superior, but introducing other uh, species actually brought it out. And of course, everything's overfished. So they have not really had a confirmed sighting of a blue walleye since. There's been walleyes, the standard yellow walleye that we have breed all over, and they've seen other tinge of colors in it, but it still has that yellowish belly. So the ones that they're seeing, that they're seeing online, have no yellow belly, and they're actually a a dark, rich blue color. Mm. So it's uh, something that uh, people have seen, took a couple pictures of, re-released. But the only way to prove that it's the actual blue walleye species is for genetics. Right. And no one's brought that forward, apparently. I would love to look at the genetics of those. And there, you know, with all of our fish, people catch some really bizarre looking fish sometimes. And the genetics are good. They're the solid straight line species, but they're just very 
color variation. People have different colored hair, different color eyes, and, and you see a ton of variation in fish. And now, I, you know, I often wonder if with, with the state of the world on all sorts of aspects that are people catching them more now than they ever did? Or are people just more apt to snap a picture and put it all out and so you see it? So whether they're more or less common is you know kind of debatable depending on the sign, sign of the times and how people are sharing information all over. But we've seen some crazy colored perch, some very unique bass, some ridiculous color patterns on northern pike. I mean, there's there's just a, a ton of variation in these in these animals, and and you'll see it when people share all over. So, but yeah, you're right. The genetics is the only way to look at it, and unless you're pulling scale samples and sending those in for analysis, that's pretty tough to say. We've got a guy. We we had on Wednesday. We had a, a gentleman. His name is Jim Kitchen, and he is known as the Pleco King. He is he has raised Plecos. Uh, one of the first guys to raise certain plecos that nobody else had in the world. It's a genus Pseudocanthicus, so it's the plecos that generally get two feet plus. Oof. And uh, he decided that in his pastime with uh, breeding all these species and helping uh, you know name and discover species, that he's going to ask his brother, which is a geneticist, and he uh, ma- DNA mapped like 75 strains just for fun. Wow. He was, yeah. swa- he was swabbing the inside of their mouth. <laughs> Imagine, just take yourself out like a two-foot Playco. These things are armored and spiked. Wrap it in a towel, hold it, while the other dude sits there with a swab in its mouth and then sends it into what, DNAforme.com? Yeah, I don't know where you send it into. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's more, you know, his brother is probably just doing it on, on the side, but um, he actually has written a paper on it and whatnot. And uh, because he doesn't have a PhD behind his name, nobody wants to look at it. Right. But, but the guy is incredibly, incredibly smart. We had him on Wednesday night. Uh, very impressed. Heard a lot of cool stories from him so uh yeah we know a guy who can who can swab your walleye <laughs> well there you go start a gofundme for that see how far <laughs> there you get we go. so the other topics i want to cover um sh- uh, shortly is the um lake surveys so what exactly are you looking to survey lakes uh, number one you're looking for invasive species you said health of the lake right what other things are you looking for so with our standard lake surveys um we are looking for basically the a summarization of what that fish population is like in the lake. Um, a lot of these lakes we stock, many we do not, um, but it's a way to see if our stocking is working, if we're maintaining decent growth of the game fish in our lakes, if we are maintaining a healthy balanced population. Um, invasive species, we will document that's not the primary focus of the fish management work we do have other staff that are focused solely on invasive species so we you know we all watch but that's not the primary focus but mostly it's just that that health and balance and long-term maintenance of that established fishery in a lake Uh, because fishing is such an enormous part of minnesota culture and history it is minnesota has one of the best in the nation programs for fish management inland fisheries management in the game fish management stocking um, um, maintaining those populations so it is it is a big deal if, if you're not a person that actively fishes you know if you look at the numbers of the the industry and the the uh, bait industry the fishing um, poles and boats and boat gas and everything that goes into it it'll it'll shock you for how big of a deal that is in Minnesota so so maintaining that is important for the state and that's what our, our jobs are focused on. That's why we're lucky to have you on. I mean, we're we're not we're one we're local, but there's really nowhere else in the the nation that we can go to a state and see what type of fishery access they have because this is the land of they say ten thousand lakes, but it's actually eighteen thousand in that uh, area, and there's no, no better place. Now, right now, 
how many lakes are around the Detroit Lakes area? Is it 412? Oh, I don't even know. I would have to count. Uh, but uh, for our management purposes, we manage about 120 lakes. Um, for DNR to actively manage a lake, that lake has to have public access. So if you've got a little pond in your backyard and their public can't get to it, we're funded by public dollars. We have to make sure that we're doing a benefit for the public when we do things. So the only lakes that we'll manage or do anything on are those with public accesses. And that could be a state-owned access, a county access access um different as long as it's uh, open to the public we manage those lakes but there's about 120 that that we actively manage is there a, a number of acreage i mean what do you consider a lake and what do you consider a pond uh, and a lot of people ask that <laughs> right because i know like like i said when we go to detroit lakes i think it says the land uh, 20 mile radius of detroit lakes i think it's 412 lakes or something like that it says on a sign in town and stuff but how big is the lake i mean you know for our management purposes i'm just gonna throw a number out there and say about 80 acres is the smallest lake that i can think of that we actively manage so smaller basins uh typically won't have public accesses on them or they will be winter kill lakes where they're shallow small basins that that kill off and we do manage some lakes that are winter kill lakes but for the most part um, those just aren't developed enough to have a public access and be something that can maintain a fish population and for those listeners who are not familiar with winter kill lakes why don't you tell them what a winter kill lake is it's not something that we do on purpose especially in minnesota right Right. (laughs) because we have a lot of listeners you know down south that don't know what winter is never seen a lake freeze right we actually drive on the lakes up here too i Um, know It's, it's it's a lot of fun to go out in the middle of the lake and then hit your what is it called? The GPS, the thing that you have in your car. Oh, OnStar. OnStar. You hit OnStar and say, I'm lost. Where am I? And they go. Yeah, It says, no, it must be wrong. You're in the middle of a lake. Yeah. So I got to <laughs> check my program You just here. get a lot of stuttering going on. and <laughs> Turn around and back out slowly. Yeah. <laughs> um, winter kill is basically all about oxygen. So if you're you know familiar with aquariums, you need oxygen supply in your aquariums. And um, in the... In the summer, sunlight produces photosynthesis through our plants, and photosynthesis product, product of photosynthesis is oxygen. So that's uh, um, oxygen releasing into the water, and then you've also got surface air mixing, mixing, producing oxygen in the lake as well. So in the winter, when you've got ice cover, you don't have that surface-to-air mix and and a supply of oxygen, and then you get snow on top of your ice, the sunlight can't get through for the plants to grow, so you don't have their byproduct of oxygen for through photosynthesis. So basically you are starving your lake of oxygen. As things start to die, that decomposition process absorbs oxygen, and all the living critters in the lake are also using the oxygen that's there, so it's your limiting factor, and when you run out of oxygen, things start to die. So that's the simplest explanation of, of winter kill. It's just a lack of oxygen. So what's the general depth that a lake needs Needs to have to survive that deprive of oxygen you know it totally depends we've seen lakes that are 30 feet kill off um, in, a, in many lakes you'll have some small shallow bays that will have some areas of of uh, low oxygen no oxygen and anything that's been trapped in there will die but you know if you've got a total basin that's less than 10 feet that's pretty pretty certain that you'll be uh, dealing with winter kill on some normal winters. But but again, we've seen some lakes that are 30 feet deep, and it, it depends on many factors in that lake, how many fish are in there. If it was a ton of plant growth and you've got a lot of decomposition, if your water quality was awful going into the into the winter, you know, depth is just one of, of many things. And sometimes, you know, you'll get some surprises. We'll do oxygen monitoring, and it'll look like everything is totally dead, and the ice will go off in the summer, and you'll have fish all over the place. So sometimes fish are able to find a refuge somewhere 
lot of folks will say, oh, it's 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 uh, spring-fed. Well, spring spring water is anoxic. You're not going to have a lot of oxygen in there, so it doesn't matter if it's spring-fed or not. But if you've got running water, like right now in our area, we've got a ton of high water, and we've got water flowing all over the place. So with that flowing water, you've got a great supply of oxygenated water coming into a lot of these basins. And for us, for production purposes, we actually do want some of our, our natural rearing ponds to kill off. And when you've got high water and water flowing, they don't. So it's it depends on a lot of things, not just not just the depth of the lake. So another way that uh, oxygen is held is in Minnesota, we have very cold water. The colder the water, the more oxygen yep. held. And the tropical fish hobby, that's why you have to use a lot of air stones, aerators, a water flow. Even we like to use hang in the back filters just to make sure that if you have your tank 85 degrees, it's going to be very hard to keep oxygen in the water. Right. And when it's water that warm too, your fish will metabolize your oxygen a lot faster too. So it's... The, their demand is higher and the ability for the water to hold oxygen is lower. So it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a balancing game. Thankfully in the winter though, our water is very cold, <laughs> obviously. So just for listeners, because they're always fascinated about Minnesota stories, how thick does the ice on lakes get around here? Oh, depends on, <laughs> depends on the winter. So uh, easily four feet some years. Um, you know, you'll be driving on the ice by usually in January, and that's two feet of ice by then. So ice auger extensions are pretty common, and three feet of an auger plus an extension. So you'll you'll need that. So I, it can be up to four feet. Up on Lake of the Woods, you can have six, seven feet of ice. So around here, uh, she mentioned Lake of the Woods is one of the uh, popular destinations for fishing. They have a lot of resorts, and they'll actually bring ice houses. They, they take a truck, drive onto the ice, bring a ice house. It's, what, what 10 by 18 they they can oh, range. They, they can range sizes. Right. They can be the size of an actual trailer house. They'll take four tons of equipment out there. Mm-hmm. They'll roll it onto the ice. They'll drill holes and they'll live there for a couple months during the winter. But they also bring small restaurants onto the, the ice sometimes, you know, like a little cafe on on wheels, and uh, they have little little communities out in the ice. It's quite uh, quite the scene. So if you've never lo- looked it up, certainly check it out. There's plenty of YouTube videos on it, and uh, that really mesmerizes a lot of our listeners. I was going to say, on uh, festivals too, we have one over in Walker where they have the it's called the Eel Pout Festival and. It, Eel pout is not a pretty fish, and uh, they collect they're gorgeous. Oh, talking to the wrong person. Talking to the wrong. Yeah, I got the stink eye from Mandy. <laughs> Very much so. So, I mean, they actually pull buildings. They pull buildings out into out into the ice. And they'll have set up a bar out there, and they'll have uh, barbecue, and it's just a big party on ice. Because up in Minnesota, we're not that we don't have we don't have that much summer, and so we're big partiers up here. At least me and Robs are. But there's a lot of things uh, when people want to be in the outdoors, they'll, they'll do this stuff on these festivals, and they'll have live bands out on the ice, and it's just crazy. And so people just don't realize how how much ice it takes to hold up a truck. And when I say truck, I'm talking suburbans, full-size pickup trucks, and they're pulling a you know 2,000-pound ice house on top of it. And we do get a lot of people that uh, underestimate the weight of their equipment that they're trying to bring out on the ice and, and sadly end up going through every year. And someone always has to try and be the first one out on the ice with always. a four-wheeler or a truck. Or If there ever is a time in your life to be a leader, on the ice is not it. Not so, it. No. So what's mm-hmm. the guidelines? I think it's four inches for walking. Uh, was it 12 inches for a small car? 12 inches for a small car, and I think it's 18 inches for a full-size truck. 24 if it's for me personally if it's under two feet of the ice i don't i don't want to be down there but yeah there's actually a, a gentleman in detroit lakes and he his job is he goes out and he gets your truck from underneath the ice after it falls through right and it's not cheap and then no it, it's and you a, are absolutely required to retrieve whatever goes through the ice so, so. if you drop your suburban your truck through mm-hmm. the ice you've got such amount of time to get it out 
and it's a very short time. And, and once the oil and the gasoline start seeping into the wa- waterway, it's a big fine and a big no-no well, and a big once, hassle. Once your vehicle goes through the ice, if I'm not correct, it's, was it X thousand a day? I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it's I, a big you, fine. Do, you do have a time limit of, of making arrangements to get that out. You can't just leave it and... That and your insurance company easier. will not cover any of this. Right. right. Yeah. Most insurance companies in this area will not pay for your truck when it falls through the ice. And every time I see a truck fall through the ice, it's somebody with a brand new truck. Right. Trying to be <laughs> trying to be that leader. Trying to be that leader. And, <laughs> you know, I, I have a lot of friends that do the ice fishing and stuff. And they'll say, yeah, I was out ice fishing. I look at them and go, it's not even frozen in the middle of the lake yet. And they go, yeah, but it's pretty safe. A pretty safe, and a lot of people die out here, unfortunately. Right. I said, if there's ever a time to be a leader in your life, that's not it. That, that's not the time. Nope. We, we, again, we've covered uh, lake surveys. So land acquisition, what type of land are you guys looking for other, or for any fishery purposes? We, we know there's some for, you know, waterfowl. Yep. But is that the focus or is it any other like shoreline? So uh, there's been a lot of research out lately on what the best way to protect our lakes actually is. And, you know, if there's been everything from fertilizer no phosphorus fertilizer to leave a buffer zone along your shoreline you know don't rip wrap every piece of shoreline just because you think rocks are prettier than cattails um, you know a ton of different ways to really save the quality of our lakes and and what it's come down to is watershed management um, everything from you know great soil practices if you're a farmer to making sure you're not releasing a ton of uh phosphorus by washing your car with some dish soap or something in the middle of town that goes into the storm sewer but it's it's watershed management and when i'll talk to a lot of uh school groups or even uh conservation clubs or something like that and i always ask you know who lives on a lake and you'll get a few people to raise their hand and and then i'll say okay who lives in a watershed and everyone kind of looks around like "Eh, i don't know do i everybody lives in a watershed and what you do on your land actually matters everything goes into these lakes and and it is the the filter of of everything that we're doing within the watershed so one of the best ways to protect our lake is to protect watersheds and what we're looking for is is uh areas that are um, subject to development on some of our more sensitive lakes. Some lakes have a very small watershed that the impacts of activities on that land have a real direct quick impact or direct effect of what that lake is going to be like for now and 100 years later. So so watershed health is the biggest thing. And one of the, the best ways that we can sustain that is um, protect that sensitive shoreline and those sensitive areas from development. So purchasing lands that... that um, won't be developed. They're open for public use. Uh, they're open for hunting. They're open for waterfall watching, birding, hiking, everything you can imagine. They're not uh, going to be developed. And um, just that that impact to the lake uh, is greatly reduced if we can protect that watershed. So there's been a lot of uh, work done in the area or in the state to try and identify watersheds that are that are more critical than others. You know, if you've got for example, the southwest part of the state, sadly, is is very, very dominated by agriculture, which is important for the economy of the state as well. But the aquatic resources are are uh, pretty hit pretty hard by agricultural practices in that part of the state. Maintaining, you know, a, a ten acre parcel and trying to protect a ten acre parcel in southwest Minnesota isn't 
really going to get a lot of bang for your buck. But if you can protect a watershed in the northern part of the state that isn't fully developed, that isn't manipulated yet, you're going to get more value for your dollars there. So we've got some areas of focus that we're trying to protect uh, more of the watershed to uh, to just maintain the health of those lakes. So those those land purchases are, are aquatic management areas, very similar in, in daily practice as the waterfall production areas that Fish and Wildlife Services purchases and um, wildlife management areas that are Division of Wildlife purchases it's all the same thing just a different end goal of what you're actually trying to protect i want to transfer the conversation to invasive species again we talk about a lot about don't dump your uh, goldfish into a lake or stream (laughs) but uh what uh we know that uh, zebra mussels are probably what number one on the list Oh, Milfoil. Depends on what list you want to talk about. There's Let's talk there, about your list. There's several lists. Um, you know, invasive species are a big thing. It, you know, they're, you've got the transfer of species from bait buckets and docks and lifts and everything else. And then you've also got the transfer of species from just release of critters from an aquarium. So it depends on you know, depends on which direction you're looking at here. For, for management practices, the, the thing that we're focused on a lot right now is zebra mussels. Um, with every new invasive species that, that comes to the attention of everybody, the sky is always falling. The world's always going to end. It's always the end of fisheries as we know it. And and uh, we've proven again and again that it's not. Things change. They do find their equilibrium. It, it will impact the system at what degree. We're still learning. Um, but zebra mussels are a, a big deal. Right now, it's the, the nuisance factor is uh, what's getting the most attention from, from people. Anyone with intake uh, pipes on the lake that they're using lake water to water their lawn or anything like that. They're going to have buildup of zebra mussels inside their pumps and and uh, live well things in their boat and all that. That's the the impact of that is more nuisance than than some of the other invasive species that are, that have come around. So people right when they're pulling their docks and lifts out of the water, they're just coated with zebra mussels and you need to scrape all that off and and uh, clean it up. So that that's been tough. Um, Eurasian water milfoil is a plant that that'll cause some dense mats. Uh, we haven't had too many outbreaks of that up here. There's a few lakes that have milfoil, but but not like the uh, Twin Cities area in Minnesota. That's that's a pretty big impact down there. Uh, we have flowering rush has hit the news for quite a few years in Detroit Lakes area. That's kind of eased back a little bit now. There's been some chemical applications that have been able to keep that under control. So, you know, again, the sky's always falling, the world's always ending, and life is over as we know it, but we do find a way to manage and, and live with these things and, and uh, carry on. It's not not saying that, you know, they're they're great, they're not by any means, but it, it just changes the way that we go about things. And even with our hatchery, we had to totally get away from surface water because of zebra mussels. So, it does change. We've also got a few different, few different uh, species of snails: banded mystery snail, uh, Chinese mystery snail, faucet snails. Um, those have been kind of under the radar a little bit, um, but when they do cause big die-offs, people tend to get a little bit excited about them. They'll blow up in windrows on lakes when they die off. But. Those live through the winter. Yeah. Wow. Yep. yep. And they'll go dormant, but yeah, they will. So, and you know, people don't realize that some of those species are are invasive as well we have had some issues with um leech leaching um our our businesses around the area that are harvesting and moving leeches around some of those were moving faucet snails around for a little bit and and it was a lot of that too they may just not have known what they were and uh but now we've got more educational materials out but but yeah the invasive species list is long um one of the more interesting ones we had up here was the red swamp crayfish which is I think, uh, I believe, a common aquarium critter. It's also used as um, 
a dissection species pretty commonly in schools, and we found red swamp crayfish in a small lake uh, in Clay County, just out of the blue. I mean, these very bizarre-looking crayfish that we had never seen. We were doing a lake survey out there just to check on the fish population and ended up finding red swamp crayfish. Sent those into our biology lab to be identified, and it was the first documentation of red swamp crayfish in Minnesota. So strange thing out of some really small off the radar lake in in Clay County. So we're assuming those likely came from an aquarium dump, but um, you know the the implications of those you can google those all night long and and see that they can tra- they can travel quite a ways um, overland and and uh, very potentially disruptive to our native crayfish populations. These crayfish we've actually seen them in the hobby. They have uh, different names that uh the tropical hobby I give them as uh, you know fire crayfish or fire lobsters for the uh, freshwater market. They're not again not a saltwater creature, but uh, they have some pretty brilliant color. That's uh, crazy that they actually live through the winter. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know when we first saw those, it was you know a bit of a shock as to where where did these things come from and and uh, trying to figure out if there's someone that had a permit for red swamp crayfish in the area, and we never did figure out the source. But please, please, please don't dispose of your fish in the in the natural systems um there are some lakes in our metro area twin cities area that have resident populations of goldfish that have taken over some of their stormwater ponds and in the metro area their stormwater ponds turn into kids fishing ponds so the kids in the neighborhood will will go and fish there and our our fisheries uh counterparts down in that area will actually work with the neighborhoods to try and establish some decent fish populations and provide a great opportunity for metro area kids to get out and fish and when they've got goldfish in their pond it just totally eliminates all possibilities for maintaining any other type of species so it's a it's a real thing of people releasing things into the wild and and not not good from fish management standpoint at all so on that note i have a couple questions i brought a little bit of homework with me (laughs) so was it 2017 there was goldfish introduced to lake bellsby i think i'm pronouncing that correct um i think that's southern minnesota and again they found the goldfish but they also found how this was discovered was a bunch of dead carp across the shores and apparently it either eradicated or extremely or expeditedly harmed the carp species in the lake and they found that it was a uh, herpes virus that was known just to carp yeah any uh, comments on that no and the, well other than fish can carry viruses just like humans do and um, in our in our hatchery here we do treat everything with an Argentine solution to try and kill off any viruses that come in naturally so it, it is a it is a naturally occurring thing and one of the risks of putting fish where uh, they aren't naturally occurring is that risk of introducing some sort of virus and and one of the issues that we deal with when we move fish from basin to basin we need to make sure that our fish are are free and certified disease free before we move them so there is some testing that goes on before we move fish from basin to basin um, and you don't know what you're picking up in, in your aquarium just like if you pick up a, a fish and you know, you're told don't dump the aquarium water into your aquarium. I always take the fish out, put it in a sample of your water, or whatever instructions they give you. It's for that reason too, just so you're not introducing some virus into your tank. Did this actually kill off the entire carp species in that lake? I don't, I don't know. Gotcha. I have not seen that info. So, but it potentially could. I mean, it's, it's, it's a real, it's a real risk. That's what we got as unverified reports is no one's seen mm-hmm. carp since. Really? So that would be, uh, Maybe a way to control carp because car- aren't carp an invasive species from 
yesteryear. <laughs> well, goldfish are carp, so same thing, different. <laughs> same thing, different, uh, different strain. But but uh, you know, and you can look back through history and all of settilization. Every time you try and uh, go after one biological issue with another biological issue, it doesn't always turn out the greatest. So you know, I, I would not recommend that. But. So again, the big question, and you can plead the fifth. It shows here from uh, reporters that DNR reported that the virus is being studied as a possible solution to combat uh, control carp species. I have no info on that whatsoever. Shoot, Sorry. I thought I got that one. Well, I've got, a, I've got a carp story for I had a, a company that I, I bought uh, goldfish to, to resell from, I want to say they're from either North or South Carolina, and they had the herpes virus go through there. It shut them down for three years. Mm-hmm. It almost bankrupted them. And same thing, they'd gotten in some breeding stock from overseas that was certified healthy, and it wiped out their farm in about three months, went from right. one pond to the other. And so it's nothing to mess around with. And like like she said, any of the stuff just goes from one pond to the next to the next, and you just don't know what you're messing with. So anything you can do to, to uh, create a safety net around this stuff is just incredibly incredibly smart right some of our cold water hatcheries they actually have to have a three-year disease-free certification before any fish can be moved out of that facility so you have to be totally disease-free for three solid years before you can be moving fish that's incredible mm-hmm. yeah and i'm pretty sure that's what they had because i know they were working closely with their their dnr and their area and stuff and they were getting constantly tested like monthly right and when they finally were came clear then they had a they had a, a waiting time also i'm not sure how long it was but finally, they called me. I'd given up on them, and they'd call me and say, "Hey, we're able to start selling you fish again." Right. But by then, two other people had popped up and and had taken away all their business. So mm-hmm. it's pretty sad. So I want to talk about dojo loaches. They're also called weather loaches. They're being a big pest in Michigan. So um, they're about three inches long. They generally come in a brown speckled uh, color, but they also come in a gold variety. Minnesota put them on a uh, you know no import list, so we uh, can't technically get them in in Minnesota, even though you know some pet stores may uh, still not abide by that or not know about the law. And have you guys uh, seen anything of those? Because in Michigan, the reports are they've completely taken over a couple lakes. No, I have not. Um, I haven't seen those at all and haven't heard of it, thankfully. Thank God. Thankfully, right. Um, no, and hopefully our our uh, licensed folks and, and uh, industries, both bait and aquarium culture, are on top of this and understand repercussions of what happens when you when you don't follow the laws. And sometimes, as we talked, you know, laws are developed to protect ourselves from ourselves, and some things are really cool, but some things are not meant to be taken from where they're from. And a lot of people think that that when they release the fish, you know, into the natural waterways, I mean, first of all, nine times out of 10, they're not going to live in the waterway anyway, because it's too cold up here in the Northland, but, but they can cause, still cause so much havoc in the first, you know, if you drop them in middle summer and our water temperature is 68, 70 degrees, yeah, they're going to live out there. They're going to go out and and cause some chaos, but if they're carrying any sort of parasites or anything that's not from this area and and pass it on other fish, they can just cause havoc all the way across. And even though that fish may die in the fall, the damage is already done. That end, the carcass is going to be eaten on. Right. Any any parasites that are there, that's that's how they multiply. Right. And, you know, we have had the last few years aside, we have had some stretches of very mild winters and, and climate change is a real thing. And, and the species that are able to survive Minnesota conditions is growing because our, you know, we are becoming 
somewhat milder, of course, the last two winters aside. But but that does open the door for a lot of things to survive in conditions that they weren't. And you can put that into any trade, the you know the floral business, the the garden plants you're able to buy and and keep alive. And you know, lemon trees and lime trees are you know overwintering in Minnesota. It's yes, that is ridiculous. amazing to me. I was at, we were at the local floral place in our hometown, and some of the you know they're selling pear trees. Right. I'm going what a pear tree. Unbelievable. But yep. yeah, it, the average temperature in our area has warmed up a couple of degrees in the last 15 years or so, which doesn't seem like much, but it, it can be a lot. can be a lot. And, and look what's happening up in the uh, up in the Arctic Circle. You know, they're dropping all kinds of uh, icebergs are falling into the ocean and uh, the flow of the ocean is increasing and you're getting more fresh water into the salt water. And, and it just, it's just a trickle down effect. Right. Right. Is there any introduction of species into certain uh, lakes or streams? So again, you guys uh, have walleye, maybe put walleye into lakes that there's known walleye at or stock lakes where they known that they can't breed because they're sport lakes. Right. But is there ever a time where you say add musky to a lake that's never had one? I'm not going to go into the musky discussion. <laughs> Thank you for trying to bait me, but I'm not. Not I'm just not musky. To. It could be right. any other species. You know, there, there are certain cases where we have, um, I'll use trout for an example. Some of our, some of our lakes are able to support trout they're two-story lakes. They're, they've got great oxygen at the lower depth or the deeper depths of the lake, and they're able to sustain trout. So we have put trout, in, trout into there, stream trout into lakes. And they're not natural there. They wouldn't be there on their own, but they produce a fantastic fishery, and, and it's something that our our customers are actively seeking out. So there are trout in places that they wouldn't be. Um, and as you mentioned, walleyes, many of the lakes we stock um, are stocked because that lake can't naturally sustain a walleye population on its own. We've got some lakes in the area that aren't stocked, have never been stocked, and have fantastic walleye fisheries. So, you know, there there is some of, of that manipulation of putting things where, where they can't sustain themselves. Um, and that's a balancing act that, that we play. We try and do no damage. And before we introduce any species into a lake we we do thoroughly look at what that population is currently like what it's what the history of that population is like if they're able to support um, whatever introduction we're going to make and what the potential effect of that introduction may be on that and if there's there's anything negative about those introductions it's not done um but you know, we, we are very careful about what we do and how we do it. And it's it's our jobs. You know, we've got a fantastic staff that's dedicated. All of us love what we do. Well, absolutely not in it for the money because the money's not the greatest, but we're in it because this is this is the field that we love and and uh, you know, we all want what's best for, for these resources. So it is done carefully, but but uh, there are some situations where, where fish are introduced. Have there been uh, um, instances of reintroduction of a species that's no longer been there for years? Sturgeon is the top one here. So we're in the Red River Basin. Red River borders uh, Minnesota and North Dakota, flows north. And um, there were records of sturgeon in the 1800s. And uh, through overharvest, loss of habitat, uh, manipulation of water levels, those fish were extirpated and, and no longer existing within that drainage basin. So... It's been over 20 years now. It's I think we're on year 22 of the 20-year introduction plan. But um, through a combination of habitat alterations, primarily the modification of low-head dams um, and um, a lot of water quality management for watershed activities and making sure that our, our waters are able to support um, great spawning areas and, again, connected waters, we were 
able to start a sturgeon reintroduction effort. So we've taken eggs out of the Rainy River and uh, for a while, as I mentioned earlier, they were hatched in our facility for a little bit. We've worked with Genoa Fish and Wildlife Hatchery in Genoa, Wisconsin, and now with Valley City National Fish Hatchery to um, to raise sturgeon and stock them into the tributaries of the Red River Basin. And we have actually um, seen quite an incredible comeback of our sturgeon population. And we've been monitoring, the sturgeon take a long time to mature, so they're not sexually mature until they're 20, 23 years old. And uh, for the last few years, we've been seeing some sexually mature males coming back through into some of these, what we believed were going to be spawning areas, um, riffles, riffle areas, uh, holes below modified dams. Um, and then just last year, we actually saw the first sexually mature female show up, which is you know, in the in the fish reintroduction world, that is a huge, huge success. So between Minnesota and North Dakota on the red, we've got a lot of the uh, the dams modified so fish can move, migrate upstream and downstream to get to different habitat areas that they want. Um, and it's been important for catfish as well and walleyes within Wild Rice River, Buffalo River, Sandhill River, Red Lake River. We've got fisheries um, farther upstream than we have had in, in many years just because those fish are finally able to move through the systems. They're not blocked by dams anymore. So it's been a great, great recovery story. So that means that this program has been going for t- over 20 years? The Sturgeon program has, yeah. That's fantastic. She yep. said 22 years out of the 20-year program. I think we're on year 22 <laughs> of the 20-year program. But but at that time, you know, let's let's do this. And that 20-year reintroduction effort was was kicked off because sturgeon takes so long to mature. So the goal of that program was going to be to make sure we try and uh, have a naturally sustaining sturgeon population within the Red River Basin. And I mean, 20 years ago, everyone's like, yeah, right. Good luck. So we could very soon see possibly some new baby sturgeon naturally naturally right occurring and they are streams right rivers right and like last year we saw one mature female but we have had many mature males for several years but it just it takes females a little longer to mature so you know ideally we'll see more and more and then we'll start monitoring for natural reproduction so if we get them on sturgeons.com or something you know like (laughs) match.com Maybe. 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 Just well, seeing. and part of that, too, Minnesota was able to uh, to develop a catch-and-release sturgeon fishing season. Uh, so you can, you know, for the season dates, I don't know off the top of my head, but there is an open season for catch-and-release sturgeon fishing, which has been a new fishing opportunity. So you could catch them? Yeah. And, but let them go. You just can't keep them. Just right. give a little kiss on the forehead and... Right. And these are enormous fish. I mean, the, these fish are 60-inch fish. They're prehistoric dinosaur really neat and it's it's lake sturgeon for the for the, the google aficionados out there that's lake sturgeon that we're reintroducing yep. so my son and his friend go up to rainy river yep and and they have gotten some 56 60 inch sturgeons and i've gotten some photographs um from him and they said it was the time of their lives right and they you know they came home with a picture they yep. put they put it back in and uh, what a wonderful time they had right and like like she said they are prehistoric if you don't know what they look like make sure you google it on your internet and check them out but they look like they're from the prehistoric age and a lot of these fish are in the rainy system are tagged and they're tagged in our system as well so they'll have little yellow dangler tags on their on their uh, fins and the tag has a number and we ask that if you do catch one of those fish to contact a dnr office and just report that tag number with where you caught that fish and it's been really really fascinating to see the movement of these fish that with that tag number just like if you're shooting a duck and it's got a leg band on it you can find out where that duck was banded sturgeon will be the same thing we can tell you how old that fish is where it was stocked and and the ability of those fish to move is just incredible the miles and miles that those put on there's also a tagging study being done on 
on catfish right now too and the the miles of of uh river that those catfish are traveling in a single year is just fascinating and on some of these fish that are tagged when they are reported from people are you getting them like caught more than once i mean are you getting yep yep sturgeon especially um yeah you'll have many reports of tags throughout the years of people catching catching a fish and you'll see that you know it was it was caught in 2016 at this location at that time it was this approximate length and now you know three years later it's moved to wherever and now it's grown to whatever size so it's it's neat and the people that are actively fishing those populations are are on it and equally as fascinated as we are with with the movement and the growth of these fish that's incredible so what is a low head dam for listeners a low head dam is um you know typically a, a dam that is three feet or less. Um, And they're built on river channels to just try and raise the water level upstream for various reasons. They've been used for hydroelectric power over the years. Um, You know, they were built for logging. They were built for many, many different purposes, just flooding a field on your hill, on your, or flooding a field on your land. But the water will come over that dam and then it'll just um, continue to circulate and rotate and just cause a rolling effect at the bottom of the dam and you'll see many safety diagrams by by dams that just say you know don't come near Stay you'll away. Get, yeah you'll get sucked into losing the word for whatever it's called right now but you the know, turbine exactly it's pretty much what it so is it's just and, a big washing machine yep and you you'll just get, get stuck and you can't get out of it so with that fish can't jump up that because of that turbulence at the bottom and um the the height of the dam they're not able to to jump sometimes and then just the the change in the flow over that they can't get through it so they become fish barriers um, fish can move downstream but they can't move upstream and and uh, fish's need for different habitat types throughout the year is is varied especially in river systems you know in the winter they're going to need to find a deep pool they're going to need to find spawning structures in the spring and when you can't migrate back up to where you want to be then you're limited on either overwintering habitat or spawning typically so modifying these dams what's typically done is the the top weir of the dam isn't changed so that water level is the same but just rock weirs are added below the dam so it basically fills in that void or deep area that was carved out by just that continuously rolling and then it creates a really wonderful natural looking rapids uh, that become great things for people to fish by and they can create recreational areas and they're fantastic fish passages too i'm trying to imagine a 60 inch sturgeon going over a, a little three foot uh, dam like that they can't right but but when they're modified and they're turned into rock rapids you still maintain your water level but, but even going across rock rapids easily. that'd be incredible come down here in the spring and watch them go through it's pretty cool is it yeah it is pretty cool that's fantastic. And I, th- you know, there's, I would imagine you can find some videos of fish going through. I know DNR has quite a few. If you go to the DNR YouTube page and, and look for fish passage projects, there's some great videos of, of fish moving through, walleyes going through, and I mean, bluegills and bass and everything moving through some of these restoration projects. So the dams are there to, to uh, raise the water level, but the fish are still able to go back and forth. That's what we're saying. Yeah. Yep. When they're modified. If they're not modified, they're barriers. But when they're modified and, and uh, they become passable. And a lot of these dams are built in the 1920s, 30s for, for various reasons. They're not used anymore, but the water level has been pretty well established. And a lot of things are based off of water level. Like in a lake, if there's a dam on the outlet and you pull out that dam, you may just end up with a 
a swamp. And of right. course, that's not ideal. So being able to keep the water level of where it's been established and maintained for many years, but still allowing fish to get through that that system is is where we're where we're at with modification. So that's that's fantastic for the modifications. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's probably still cheaper to do something like that than put little chairlifts, <laughs> like you see late night on TV. You know how you get up to your stairs so you fall and can't get up. So and then it it makes them much safer as much well. Much safer. You so know? yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest um, sturgeon found in Minnesota that's on record? Oh, you'd have to look at the state record. The state record for all of our Minnesota fish is printed in our fishing regs. So, so you can look at that. Um, if I throw you a number off the top of my head, I'm going to be way off. So I'm not even going to try. Feet. Well, <laughs> for those that are interested in looking for any of the species profile or any of the records that Minnesota State has, go to dnr.state.mn.us. And you'll find a wealth of resources, including uh, a lot of the projects they're doing and more information on the fisheries in the great state of Minnesota. Well, any, anything else? I mean, we didn't get cool stories. Do you have one cool story before we leave? Yeah. Have you ever found an alligator? I have never found an alligator. Um, one of the neatest things I found this fall was a freshwater sponge. You don't see those too often. That was pretty cool. I don't even know we uh, had those. We do. And they're, they're pretty neat. Um, yeah, you don't see those too often. Otherwise, interesting stories. I'm kind of at a blank right now. I, I have a question. Where do you keep Bigfoot? If I told you, then it wouldn't be a secret Dang anymore. Dang it. Secret time. <laughs> the He's DNR. the one that gets the caviar. Secret time. The DNR keeps Bigfoot locked up and only lets him out on holidays. You have to work for 25 years before you're given a key. I'll and how long that. have you been here? 22. Oh, no. Okay. So in three years, we're going to revisit this and find out where Bigfoot lives. Because mm-hmm. you hear all these reportings of Bigfoot, but yet nobody... Joe Rogan just stopped listening to our podcast. I hope you. Joe Rogan this. did because he loves Bigfoot. <laughs> so no crazy stories. Oh, I don't. I, I'd have to think for a little bit. They're all crazy. I don't know. Doesn't have to be your favorite. Give me a topic. Give you a topic. Well, of course, about fish. <laughs> I mean that that's a given. <laughs> so probably my favorite fish story that I've told several times is I used to do a lot of uh, outreach events and um, that big tank that you mentioned at the top of the podcast here that that is in our lobby uh, during the summer we bring that around to different events. Uh, scouting events, uh, community stuff, some lake associations, fairs, and we try and bring a, a nice display of fish for people to look at and see. And, and it's a great way for people to come up and, and interact with us and let us tell you all the ways we love our job. And, and uh, But anyway, I was at this event and, and I had a beautiful, probably two and a half pound walleye in the tank. And it was a kid's event. So it was a lot of preschool kids and I had some bluegills and whatever else and turtles and all sorts of stuff. And there was a guy that was there with his grandkids and his, and his wife that kept coming by and looking at the tank and looking at the tank. And you know, I'd say hi to him and ask if he has any questions. And nope, 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 no questions no questions and uh finally at the end i was cleaning up and he was there and he's like all right he said i just have to ask he said what is that fish looked said uh can you point to which one he points to the walleye and i said well that's a walleye and he looked and he goes oh my gosh and his wife was standing next to him and smacked him with his with her purse and says no wonder you can't ever catch any you don't even know what they look like and she just (laughs) laughed So yeah, that's Smooth. that's my favorite walleye story. He apparently has been swinging by at the grocery store, he picking was, it up frozen on the way home. He may have sat in the back seat the whole way home. Oh, I don't boy. know, but yeah, that was that the was mighty fish. You don't remember his name, so we can you know, don't. humiliate and, him. But to give him some credit, you know, when they are just like aquarium fish, when they're in a very uh, bland area, no background colors, they will lose some of their color, but. Yeah, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt on that one. But that one, I will never forget that. That was a great story. 
That was. Well, thanks again for uh, joining us uh, on the podcast and letting us come and use your facilities. Sure. This has been a, uh, an adventure for us. Uh, we have a mobile podcast uh, studio, and she walked in and it's like, whoa, we're really doing this. I was a little bit intimidated, honestly, yeah. We, we have fun. <laughs> we have a lot of fun. And once she told us that we're going to get 10 pounds of free walleye you know, to do this podcast, I was like, fantastic. Oh, yeah. Is that what it was? <laughs> Hopefully you bought your state license. Uh, I was say, wasn't, wasn't that part of the deal? No? I can give you 10 pounds of walleye scales that we have oh, to, no. uh, to age, and you can age them all and bring them back to us. We That'll said nothing okay. about filet. No. That's, that's the key there. I, thought, I thought we're getting lunch is what I thought. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, scales. I was, I was mistaken mm-hmm. again. Well, thanks again, Mandy. Thanks and for having me. For listeners, you know, share the podcast out with your friends. That's the real way that we get the, this to other listeners. Like and subscribe. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And again, we want to do uh, a lot more of these. So if you have a request that you ha- want a podcast uh, focus on a topic, we'll go out and find the experts. Clearly, we've been lucky enough to find the experts so far. And uh, we'll see you on the next podcast. Yes, we've been very, very lucky, very blessed, and many people just stepping forward and helping us out with this podcast. We've had some incredible guests. If you've not heard of our podcast, please look back at all of our podcasts, give them a listen. And if you like them, let us know. If you don't like them, let us know, because we're here to help. AquariumGuysPodcast.com. And on the bottom of the website, you'll find our email and a telephone number if you'd like to leave us a message that we can play on air. And, uh, you know, buy a t-shirt. And if you get any pictures of Bigfoot, please send them to the Minnesota DNR Attention, Mandy. <laughs> yes. Attention, Mandy. Yes, please do. I'm very please. interested in that. <laughs> Thank you. All right, guys. Podcast out. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. Please visit us at AquariumGuysPodcast.com and listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We're practically Thanks. everywhere. We're on Google. I mean, just go to your favorite place, Pocket Casts. Subscribed. Make sure it gets push notifications directly to your phone. Otherwise, Jim will be crying in his sleep. Can, can I listen to it in the in my treehouse? In your treehouse, in your fish room, even alone at work. What about at my man cave? Especially your man cave. Yeah. Only if Adam's there. No. With feeder guppies. No. No. They're endless. You midget loving sucking motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see you next time. <laughs> Later.